Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. It may surprise you to learn that early on, Albert Einstein wasn't considered a particularly bright child. Rather, Einstein's parents were concerned about the boy during his early years because it took him longer than other children his age to learn to speak. At one point in his early development, Einstein was even called the dopey one by some rather nasty children. But as Einstein grew older, that's when his teachers began to take notice about how truly remarkable the boy's mind really was. At the same time, both Einstein's parents and teachers also acknowledged that he had a bit of a mischievous streak as well. One headmaster actually expelled Albert Einstein, while another went down in history by claiming the young man would never amount to much. But Einstein's parents never lost faith in him. They knew he was something special. And they took a different approach to cultivating their son's development by attempting to engage and stimulate his intellect. Einstein's father gave him a compass at age five, and the boy would go on to puzzle over the nature of magnetism for the rest of his life. Likewise, his mother introduced him to the violin, which became another lifelong obsession. Some researchers have suggested Einstein may have been undiagnosed with some form of autism or Asperger's syndrome, although still others dispel this notion, pointing out that throughout his childhood, Einstein had many close friendships and enjoyed engaging in deep intellectual discussions with people. One other widely held belief about Einstein is that he failed math growing up. This allegation became so commonly accepted that it even got picked up in a Ripley's Believe It or Not comic strip. But this is a complete myth that caught on and never went away. In 1935, a rabbi showed Einstein a headline declaring, the greatest living mathematician failed in mathematics. Einstein laughed about this and pointed out that by age 15, he had mastered advanced calculus and even came up with a different method to prove the Pythagorean theory. In truth, Einstein often felt bored and unchallenged in his classes as he quickly surpassed both his fellow students and his teachers in both math and science. Einstein lived a great deal inside his mind. He often thought in pictures rather than words. At age 16, he began to imagine what it would be like to ride alongside a beam of light. This would lead him to consider that if you actually achieved the same speed as the beam of light, wouldn't it appear stationary at that point? It was these early daydreams that would eventually lead Einstein to develop his special theory of relativity. Knowing what we do about Einstein's childhood, it does raise an interesting question about how highly intelligent children develop and grow up to use those skills. In the case of Albert Einstein, he put his gifts towards the advancement of science and the betterment of mankind. But what if there was a child who went in a different direction? A really smart kid with a penchant for mischief who turned that genius to some dark impulses 
In other words, what would happen if someone like a young Einstein broke bad? I'm Nate Hale, the Heisenberg of the podcasting community, and this is The Conspirators. Golf Manor is a quiet, well-kept neighborhood in Commerce Township, a suburb about 25 miles away from Detroit, Michigan. The neighborhood has a sort of timeless charm to it. It's the sort of place you might expect to see in a movie set or a television sitcom. The Golf Manor Homeowners Association ensures that all homes remain neat and tidy and none of them become eyesores. Lawns must be trimmed, homes need to be painted, and maintained regularly and things like unsightly broken-down vehicles in the street are frowned upon. One thing the rules never accounted for, though, were atomic test sites and the proper handling of nuclear materials. On June 26, 1995, neighbors along Pinto Drive were startled to see a group of men in ventilated hazmat suits swarming the carefully manicured lawn of the home owned by Michael Polasek and Patty Hahn. The dozen or so men all marched into the backyard and began taking apart the large wooden potting shed that stood there with chainsaws. The scene became even more chaotic as the men began stuffing the pieces of the shed inside large black steel drums marked with yellow radiation warning symbols. At the time, none of the neighbors had any clue what the men were doing. When asked, the men in the hazmat suits gave only vague answers. Gossip blew up immediately about what could be happening at the house on Pinto Drive. Patty Hahn had a reputation as a bit of a drinker, and it was known she and Michael got into some loud arguments. Michael Polasek, on the other hand, seemed more affable. But some of his neighbors thought he also had a bit of an annoying adolescent streak, despite being a grown man. He was known to park himself in a lawn chair in his backyard and detonate M80 fireworks for fun. Then there was David. No one thought anything bad about David. He was a quiet, well-spoken teenager who never got in any trouble. Heck, he was even an Eagle Scout. The only sign something may have been amiss in the home was when one of the neighbors remarked that late one night, they looked out their back window and noticed the potting shed emitting an eerie glow. The EPA spent three days removing every scrap of the potting shed and even vacuuming up the soil it stood on without ever providing any hint as to what could be so toxic they needed to do so. After it was over, most of the neighbors just shrugged their shoulders and carried on with life as usual. It wouldn't be until years later when the story became national news that the residents would learn the terrible truth. It turned out that Patty's 17-year-old son David had been experimenting with building his own atomic breeder reactor inside that shed. And unbeknownst to everyone, the boy had exposed more than 40,000 area residents to dangerous levels of radiation. David Hahn was always a bright child, but like Einstein, his parents also noticed he had a mischievous streak, even when he was little. In many respects, David was a pretty average kid. He played baseball and soccer, and he loved to go hiking. He even joined a Boy Scout troop where he was able to really expand his love for the outdoors. 
But at the same age when other boys would have been hanging out at the mall or chasing girls, David Hahn was building his own neutron gun and managing to trick officials into telling him how he could obtain nuclear materials so that he could build his very own breeder reactor. David Hahn was born in Royal Oak, Michigan in 1976. His parents divorced when he was little and his mom and dad split custody of him. Under the custody agreement, David spent weekdays with his father and stepmother and weekends and holidays with his mother and her boyfriend. David's dad was a mechanical engineer at General Motors and he and David's mother noticed early on their son's love for crafting little experiments for himself. One of David's earliest memories was of being four years old and of him raiding the medicine cabinet for all the cough syrup, toothpaste, nail polish remover, and anything else he could find. He mixed up everything inside one of his mother's ashtrays hoping to cause some sort of chemical reaction, but was instead disappointed that he'd made nothing more than a globby gray mess. It wasn't until he found a bottle of drain cleaner beneath the sink and dumped that in the ashtray that he finally got the reaction he'd been hoping for. The goop began to fizz and bubble and made such a volatile mess that he had to dump everything down the toilet to hide what he'd done from his parents. When David was still in elementary school, his mother Patty was diagnosed with depression and paranoid schizophrenia. She'd long had a drinking problem, something that ran in her family. But a few years after David was born, she also began hearing voices and started telling friends and relatives she thought strangers were following her. She became so paranoid that someone was attempting to kidnap David that she had all the locks on the apartment changed. Then she began fearing there were ghosts in the walls. And to keep him safe, she began taking David with her everywhere she went. Patty was prescribed a number of different antipsychotic medications. But by the time David was four, she was quietly committed to a mental hospital. At the time, Ken lied and told David his mother had been in a car accident and she had to go away for a while to heal. But David didn't believe him, and he began taking to hiding behind the couch whenever he could to make sure the ghosts or the kidnappers couldn't get him. Six months later, Patty returned home, but her relationship with Ken remained strained from then on. The couple argued loudly all the time. And by the time David turned nine years old, David's parents finally split for good. David's childhood fascination with science took a major turn when his maternal grandfather, another former engineer for GM, gave David the Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments. That book promised to open up new worlds for the young reader to explore, and to provide hours of entertainment, all of which sounded great to young David who was having difficulty adjusting to his parents' divorce. By age 12, David had moved from the Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments to his father's college chemistry textbooks. He set up a laboratory in the bedroom of his father's house. He bought himself a set of beakers, test tubes, Bunsen burners, and other equipment he needed to perform his experiments. But David's experiments went far beyond the typical baking soda volcano. Now, by age 14, David was able to craft nitroglycerin. David shared his love for making things go boom with his mother's boyfriend, Michael Polasek. He and Michael enjoyed going off in the woods together and blowing things up with the makeshift explosives David concocted. As well as the nitroglycerin, David also came up with his own formula for gunpowder, and he liked to build tiny homemade bombs just for fun. 
Although David's parents encouraged their son's interest in science, they soon became alarmed by all the chemical spills and minor explosions he caused. David managed to completely wreck his bedroom inside his father's house. The walls were badly pockmarked and the carpet became so irrevocably stained that it had to be torn out. After that, David was forced by his father and stepmother to move his makeshift lab to the basement where he could do less damage. This was just fine by David, who now had even more room and more privacy to do some really fun experiments. A number of other people began to take notice of David's experiments as well. One day, David showed up for Boy Scout camp with bright orange skin. He'd overdosed himself with a chemical that was used for artificial tanning. Another time, David blew up a tent by lighting a stockpile of magnesium he'd managed to smuggle into camp with him. The equipment David needed proved costly, so he worked multiple day jobs to pay for all his lab equipment. Over time, David's obsession with his experiments grew increasingly concerning for his parents. He became so focused on his own brand of science that he began to fall behind in his regular schoolwork. His father actually took to locking the boy out of the house at times when he knew he'd be there by himself to ensure he didn't burn the place down. One day, his father and stepmother were upstairs when they heard a loud explosion coming from the basement. They rushed down there only to find David lying barely conscious on the floor, still clutching the shattered remains of a jar of red phosphorus in one hand. David had been curious what would happen if he smacked the jar with a screwdriver. It turns out, it exploded, sending shards of glass directly into his eyes. David hadn't been wearing any eye protection at the time. For weeks after, he had to make trips to the eye doctor to have shards of glass removed from his eyeballs. After that, David's stepmother banned all experiments from the house. But that still didn't put an end to David's obsession. He instead packed up his lab and moved it to his mother's house, specifically to her potting shed out back. David's mother, Patty, wasn't nearly as alarmed by David's obsession as his father and stepmother were. He really should have been, though. Because that's when David began to work on his next big experiment. The experiment that would make the name David Hahn national news. And help give him the nickname, the Atomic Boy Scout. You see, that's around the time when David Hahn began to dream about building his very own nuclear breeder reactor. One of the passages David most remembered from the Golden Book of Chemistry was a section that described how nuclear power would be the driving force that could make the world a better place. When David was little, he'd always thought of radiation as this mysterious force that could do things like genetically alter a spider that could then turn him into Spider-Man. But now he began to think there were other ways he could save the world outside of becoming a superhero. David grew up at a time when the energy crisis of the 70s and 80s hit Detroit especially hard. Detroit was, of course, the biggest car producer and a major manufacturing hub. But thousands of auto workers were put out of work as demand for gas-guzzling cars dried up in lieu of more fuel-efficient competitors from Japan. The soaring cost of energy was a frequent subject of discussion in David's home growing up. This led David to wonder about alternate power sources. One of the stories from the Golden Book of Chemistry that especially fascinated David was that of Marie and Pierre Curie, the legendary scientists who discovered radium. The Curies were hailed as heroes in their time, 
and radium was considered to be the miracle cure to practically all the world's ills. David, too, hoped one day the world would see him as a hero as well. After he naively believed he could solve the world's energy woes, when David turned 15, he became an Eagle Scout. One of the merit badges David earned was the Atomic Energy Badge, something no other member of his troop had ever attempted before. David reached out to several pro-nuclear companies and put together a pamphlet extolling the virtues of nuclear energy. He even constructed a scale model of a nuclear reactor out of straws and plastic bottles to show how such a reactor worked. David became convinced that nuclear power was the solution to the world's energy crisis. It was the only power source that made sense in his mind that could save the world. He just needed to demonstrate to everyone that his ideas were feasible. The way he decided to go about doing this was to build his own breeder reactor. A breeder reactor is a less conventional type of nuclear reactor that generates more fissile material than it consumes. Breeder reactors have been around in one shape or another for more than 75 years. In a typical breeder reactor, a core of plutonium-239 is surrounded by a blanket of uranium-238. As the plutonium decays, its lost neutrons gets absorbed by the uranium, thereby turning it into uranium-239, a highly unstable radioactive isotope. This isotope then rapidly decays into another isotope, Neptunium-239. Further decay from there turns the Neptunium-239 back into Plutonium-239, and the process starts all over again. As you can imagine, such reactors can be highly efficient, but they can also be highly dangerous. And they certainly shouldn't be the sort of things a 15-year-old child should be building in a potting shed. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. David had a number of hurdles he had to get past in order to build his breeder reactor. Safety wasn't one of them. He'd never been very concerned with safety in the past when he was goofing around with explosives, so why should his experiments with deadly radiation be any different? He was, of course, not legally allowed to purchase radioactive materials. But David managed to get around this by posing as a physics teacher or other college professor on several occasions in order to learn some unorthodox methods he could get his hands on radioactive isotopes. One thing David learned was that you could find the isotope americium in some smoke alarms. You could also find thorium in old lanterns and radium in the paint used on old luminous clocks and watches. David phoned a smoke alarm company and asked if they'd be willing to sell him a large number of broken smoke alarms that he could use for a school experiment. 
The company didn't ask many questions and instead agreed to sell him the alarms for a dollar apiece. David also stole several more smoke alarms from his Boy Scout camp. When David finally received the smoke alarms, he realized he didn't know where to find the radioactive bits. So David called the alarm company's customer service line, where a friendly operator gladly instructed David where to find the americium without questioning why a 15-year-old kid might want to know such a thing. David picked out all the bits of americium and welded them together with a blowtorch. Then he jammed this welded radioactive mass into a lead tube and covered it with aluminum foil. This was his crude first attempt at making a neutron gun, a device that can shoot radiation out one end in order to irradiate different elements. And it worked. David tested his homemade neutron gun with a Geiger counter he'd purchased, and lo and behold, it was radioactive. Now, David could have simply used his gun to make some non-radioactive isotopes radioactive, but he had bigger fish to fry. Instead, he began seeking out already radioactive isotopes in order to make them even more radioactive, specifically turning uranium-235 into even more radioactive isotopes, perhaps even plutonium. He called a Czechoslovakian firm that sold radioactive isotope ores, and posing as a college professor, he managed to talk them into sending him some uranium ore. He also managed to convert some thorium he'd taken from old camping lanterns into uranium-233, he did this by purchasing $1,000 worth of batteries and using the lithium inside them to purify the thorium with a Bunsen burner. But David wasn't completely happy with the results he was getting from his homemade neutron gun. He was certain he could get more power out of it by adding radium to the mix. This he got hold of by driving around to antique stores with his Geiger counter mounted to the dashboard of his car until he got a reading. He found a clock inside one store containing radium-painted dials. He purified the radium from the paint, something which was highly dangerous to him, I might add. After that, he managed to take the refined radium and insert it into his neutron gun. After that, David's two long years of work finally paid off, and at the age of 17, he now had enough nuclear material to finally build his breeder reactor. His first reactor was actually quite crude. In fact, a number of nuclear engineers in the years that followed, who have studied the case of David Hahn, have claimed that what David built wasn't actually a real breeder reactor in the truest definition of the term. The device David made was constructed inside a bored-out block of lead. David originally tried shielding his reactor by wrapping the contraption in aluminum foil and duct tape. But as the days went on, the radiation levels he was detecting began to spike steadily and more terrifyingly higher. Soon, David grew increasingly concerned as he began to realize his Geiger counter was picking up radiation from two blocks away, and even through solid concrete. It got so bad, David began wearing a makeshift lead poncho in order to get near it. Eventually, David began to get worried that his reactor might be dangerous to his neighbors, so he decided to dismantle it with the plan of dispersing the radioactive pieces so that there wasn't so much radiation all in one place. Later on, it would be revealed that Patty actually threw a lot of David's radioactive materials out in the garbage. After she became fearful, she might lose her house. David actually got caught after he took parts of his experiments and loaded them into the trunk of his car. But things went wrong when one of the neighbors thought the young man they saw outside was stealing tires and phoned the police. When the cops searched David's car and opened the trunk, they found it full of chemicals, 
a padlocked and duct-taped toolbox, and a strange gray powder. David calmly warned them that they should step back because the contents of his trunk were highly radioactive. The officer became worried David had built himself some sort of bomb and called for a tow truck to haul the car away. This was actually a bad idea because it had the effect of spreading the radiation even further across the town as they drove through. The bomb squad soon discovered the toolbox didn't contain an explosive device as expected. But instead, they were shocked by the large amount of radioactive isotopes it contained. After that, David clammed up and refused to answer any more of the police's questions. He refused to tell authorities about his backyard nuclear reactor and it wouldn't be discovered until many months later when the authorities finally searched his mother's home. David's backyard was cleaned up by the Environmental Protection Agency under a law that had been enacted following one of the most devastating environmental disasters in history. Back in 1890, a man named William Love purchased a three-acre tract of land near Niagara Falls, New York that was planned as a model community for families. He believed that by digging a short canal between the upper and lower Niagara rivers, Power could be cheaply generated to fuel the homes of the future for his model city. But by the 1920s, cheap electricity was widely available in every home, and the land was only partially developed the way it had been intended. During the 1940s, the land was purchased by the Hooker Chemical Company, who used the location to dump more than 19,000 kilograms of chemical byproducts for the manufacturing of solvents, dyes, and perfumes. In 1953, the chemical company covered over the land with dirt, and sold it to the city for $1. Over the next few decades, about 100 homes and a school were built right on top of the land where tons of chemical pollutants had been buried just beneath everyone's feet. As time went on, reports began coming in of corroded waste disposal drums poking up through the ground in people's backyards. Trees and gardens turned black and died. An entire swimming pool broke loose from its foundation and became a toxic cesspool full of the chemicals that had leached up from the ground. Puddles of noxious chemicals seeped into residents' basements. Children would return home from recess with chemical burns on their faces and skin. Over time, the New York State Health Department also began receiving reports of an alarming number of birth defects and miscarriages, all happening within this relatively tiny community. Other stories began emerging of entire families developing high white blood cell level counts and leukemia. The resulting scandal caused the federal government to evacuate 221 families and draft the Superfund Cleanup Law in 1980, which allocates funds and can force companies to pay for the toxic damage they do to the environment. In Commerce Township, it cost $60,000 to clean up the radioactive site where the shed once stood. It's estimated that David exposed as many as 40,000 nearby residents to unhealthy levels of radiation. To this day, there is still some argument whether David's breeder reactor ever really worked to create fission. David insisted to his dying day that it really worked, and that the only reason some people are skeptical is because they never saw the entire contraption put together. David claimed he had already dismantled and thrown out a lot of his reactor's guts before the police caught him. But, even if David didn't build a functioning breeder reactor, it's still believed he was able to build a neutron source that generated a dangerous level of radiation. After the scandal broke, David fell into a deep depression. By 1996, he was hit by the one-two punch of his girlfriend breaking up with him. Then his mother, Patty, committed suicide. He lacked any real direction in his life after that. 
He was nearly kicked out of the Eagle Scouts and the entire community shunned him. His father enrolled him in community college, but he flunked out after he stopped attending classes. David always refused to submit himself to medical tests to see how much damage he'd done to himself with the radiation he'd been exposed to. He always insisted he'd only shaved about five years of his life off at best. After flunking out of college, David's father and stepmother gave him the ultimatum to either join the military or move out. David joined the Navy where he was stationed on the aircraft carrier the USS Enterprise, which was run by nuclear energy. But throughout his time aboard the Enterprise, David was prohibited from getting anywhere near the nuclear reactors. David spent six years in the Navy earning the rank of Lance Corporal before being honorably discharged. He returned to Michigan where he continued to struggle with mental illness and addiction and was later diagnosed as suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. It was around this time that the FBI received a tip that David was planning to build another nuclear reactor and even had a neutron source hidden in his freezer. The FBI interviewed David who insisted he'd done nothing wrong. He claimed to the FBI he was working on a book and film about his life. Another anonymous tip came in telling the authorities that David's mental health was failing and he was frequently using cocaine heavily. This informant also claimed David had stopped taking his prescribed antipsychotic medication and was also attempting to build another nuclear reactor. In 2007, David was arrested for stealing the smoke detectors from the halls of his apartment building. It was discovered he was once again removing the americium from them and welding it all together to make himself another neutron gun. He went to court and was sentenced to 90 days in jail. He was then given medical care and placed in a psychiatric ward. David's mugshot from that time shows his face covered with bloody sores. It's unclear whether these were caused by radiation poisoning, psoriasis, or heavy drug use. David pleaded guilty to attempted larceny. The court sentenced him to time served and under the terms of the plea, he was then sent to an inpatient treatment facility. On December 27, 2016, David Hahn was found dead in his home at age 39. The autopsy report listed the cause of death as an overdose of alcohol and drugs. The autopsy report also made mention of his history of alcohol abuse, as well as a lifetime of radiation injuries. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder, we have a Patreon account set up where you can get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of exclusive mini-episodes. Another way you can help support the show is to check out our merch store, where you can purchase all sorts of Conspirators t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're interested in either Patreon or my merch store, I'll put a link in the show notes. Yet another great way you can help us out that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find our show in most of the places you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even write us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. I have a small correction to make. A listener wrote in regarding my recent episode on the life of Bass Reeves and pointed out that I mentioned both Fort Smith and the U.S. Marshals Museum are in Texas, when in fact they're both in the great state of Arkansas. I'm terribly sorry about the error, and thanks to my faithful listeners for keeping me honest.
Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.